Well, we're in Romans. Uh, we have been in Romans since last February, and by my calculations, we will finish this coming February, a uh, full year in Romans, which is great, one of the greatest books in all the Bible, the Gospel of God concerning His Son, and we're in Romans chapter 12 uh, this morning, uh, verses 1 and 2, just two verses, and so as is our tradition, will you stand with me and let's read our scripture together. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, Romans 12.1 serves as kind of a hinge point in Paul's letter. Uh, the word therefore is the pin in the hinge, if you will. And it says, taking everything I've been writing about for 11 chapters into full consideration, here then is the appropriate response. And so he's going to spend the rest of the letter talking about what it means from a practical perspective to live a Christian life in all of our relationships, in all of the places where we live. Here is how you, the Christian community in first century Rome, and you, Christian community in 21st century Thurston County, should live because you have believed, and so you've been justified by God's grace alone, through personal faith alone, in His Son Jesus Christ alone. Before we go any further this morning, I I want to tell you about two people. We'll call them John and Sheila. Uh, They don't know each other. John and his wife, Mary, are young. They have 1.5 children. They live on the East Coast. John's a history buff. In fact, he has furnished his entire home in Civil War era furniture. And he's always on the hunt for more. And John heard about a home for sale in the Deep South that was built in the mid-1800s. The asking price was $200,000. And not only that, but the house was full of Civil War-era furniture that was to be included in the sale. John and his wife had only been married for two years. They didn't have a lot of extra income. But he couldn't resist. So he got in the car and he drove several miles south to see this, several hundred miles south to see this home. Not surprisingly, a lot of other people had the same idea. When he arrived, there were just lots of people milling around in the yard and inside the home. John got out of the car, went in, immediately began identifying which furniture were uh, clever reproductions and which were genuine antiques. He was satisfied, pretty excited to realize that most of the furniture was authentic. The house was crowded and He was getting a little claustrophobic. The thought occurred to him to check the basement. No one was going down there. So he found the door. Top of the stairwell was a light switch. He flipped it up. Single light bulb went on at the bottom of the stairs. Not a lot of light, but he walked down. Couldn't see very well. Waited for his eyes to adjust. And when when they did, he noticed over in the corner a great big old roll-top desk covered in dust and cobwebs. And he walked over and began pulling open the drawers, and there were things in there, papers, documents, 
opened up the roll top, more papers, more documents, an old pen. And the thought occurred to him that a lot of the desks that were made in that era had secret compartments. They had false bottoms in the drawers. And so he began just because of his experience and knowing where to look, he, he began feeling around and knocking on things. And sure enough, he found a drawer with a false bottom and he opened that up, put his hand in the drawer, got bit by a spider. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) He put his hand in the drawer and just felt all the way to the back. And there he found, he felt a leather pouch. And he pulled it out and opened it up. In the pouch were 10 solid gold Confederate coins. He thought, this is nice. Put them back in the pouch, put them back in the false compartment, closed everything up, made it look the way it should look, and went upstairs and called his wife. And then there's Sheila. You want to know the end of the story, don't you? Let's talk about Sheila first, though. Sheila is a 30-something single woman, Uh, Works as a freelance artist. She's on a road trip vacation in the Midwest. She pulls into a little town. She notices a sign for a community fundraiser at the local elementary school, and she's kind of a sucker for those things, so she says, I'm going. Follows the signs, pulls up in front of the school, goes inside. There are all the predictable items being sold, baked goods, crafts, quilts, farm produce, and the like. She also notices that at the front of the room, looking very out of place on an easel, is a Picasso reproduction that's for sale for $25,000. Now, Sheila's master's degree had focused on 20th century artists. She knew a, a good deal about Pablo Picasso and his work, so she walked over and talked with a, an armed guard that was standing there and discovered that The reason the price was so high was that the quality of the reproduction was itself so high. But she was told it it clearly wasn't an authentic Picasso because the artist had just scribbled his initials in the bottom corner rather than signing his name as Picasso would have done. And a light went on in the back of Sheila's head and she stopped and thought for a moment and remembered from her studies that in the first year in which Picasso's works went public, he had not signed his full name. He, in fact, had just scribbled his initials. So she reached into her purse and pulled out a magnifying glass and began examining this artwork. And she realized because of her training that this was either an incredibly masterful reproduction or it was an original Picasso worth millions. At the time, she was living from hand to mouth. She was an artist. The $25,000 asking price was far more than she could reasonably afford. Or was it? So she pulls a calculator out of her purse. Women have all kinds of things in their purses, right? So she pulls a calculator out and she began calculating. And she concluded that she'd have to either, well, she would have to sell her entire personal collection. 
She had a, an older Volkswagen Jetta, which she loved, and she'd have to empty her bank account to afford the purchase of the painting. But what if it was, in fact, only a reproduction? But if it was the real thing... So what should John do? What should Sheila do? To answer the question, each one would have to weigh both the risks and the rewards. How would you advise them? Before you answer, here's another vignette, a parable told by Jesus. It consists of only one verse, Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You know, picture that. You know, you're walking through a field. You've, you've got a walking stick. And as you're walking along, the stick is hitting the ground. And, and, then, and then you hear a thud. And so you step back and you tap around. Where was that? You find it thud, thud. So, so this man gets down on his knees. He's digging in the dirt with his bare hands, and he, he pulls out this wooden box, and when he opens it, what he finds is a treasure trove. What would he do? Again, what are the risks? What are the rewards? The risk was that the field would cost him all that he had. Another risk is somebody, someone else might buy the field before he could get to it. So he had to hurry to work the transaction, but the reward would be that he would become wildly wealthy. So he assessed the situation, made a decision. He sold his entire estate to purchase the field. So back to John. What did John do? John called his wife Mary. Together they agreed that the purchase was worth the risk in view of the reward. So they bought the house and all that furniture, and the coins turned out to be worth approximately $10 million. What about Sheila? I mean, she'd have to part with her beloved Jetta, <laughs> as well as the artwork she'd collected over the years. But if that so-called reproduction was, in fact, a priceless original, it would be worth it all, wouldn't it? Her training and experience told her it was, and so she did. She paid the twenty-five grand. She later discovered, in fact, that the painting was not worth the 25000 she paid. Instead, it was worth $30 million. So why am I sharing these stories? I'm sharing them because in the scripture we read together earlier, Paul made an appeal to his fellow Christ followers in Rome, and so to us, that runs parallel to each of those vignettes. He's asking them to give up something in exchange for something worth infinitely more. So notice, first of all, the tone of Paul's appeal in Romans 12.1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Today he would say brothers and sisters. See, Paul could have given a command at this point. I mean, he's been spending 11 chapters laying it all out. But it's noteworthy that he is not appealing to them in a condescending way 
from his position of authority as an apostle. But instead, he's appealing to them in a loving way from alongside them as a brother in Christ. In fact, the word that Paul uses here for appeal is parakaleo, which means to come alongside someone and call them out, call them forward. Secondly, notice the basis of Paul's appeal. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And for 11 chapters, Paul has been unfolding to the Roman believers the, the mercies of God. The gospel is precisely God's mercy to undeserving sinners and giving his son to die for us and justifying us freely by grace through faith and sending us his life-giving spirit and making us his children. In fact, it can be argued that the key word in chapters 9 to 11 in particular is, in fact, mercy. That word just shows up over and over again in those chapters. And notice that mercies here is plural. Paul's saying that there's no greater incentive to living their living holy lives than the consideration of the full array of all of God's expressions and demonstrations of his grace, his kindness toward us. And towering over all of them, of course, is the cross. Then notice the content or the substance of Paul's appeal. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And Paul's using language here that's appropriate to the the temple. He's he's picturing worshipers at the temple who come with an offering. And we know that some offerings in the Old Testament were sin offerings. A worshiper would bring an animal or a bird, and the priest would offer it to God by shedding its blood for the forgiveness of the sins of the worshiper. But now there are no more sin offerings because Jesus is our sin offering. He gave one sacrifice for all and said, it is finished. So the the offering that Paul's calling us to, clearly not a sin offering, the offering of our bodies cannot, must not be construed in any way as a way of being made right with God. But another kind of offering was a whole burnt offering, which was always a valuable animal from one's flock. It had to be without defect, holy, without blemish. Why? Because that animal is expensive monetarily. That animal is valuable for what it produces. When someone offered that animal to be burned, the best of their flock, it was meant to symbolize a larger truth that everything you have, all that you are, is at God's disposal. You didn't give God your leftovers, whatever was left over at the end of the month. You didn't give God your lame animals, your defective animals. You didn't give God something you really didn't want anyway. The burnt offering was always burnt totally and represented complete surrender and devotion to God. To be a living sacrifice, I think Paul is saying, is to say to God, I am fully at your disposal. Or as the young woman in the video said, I want to give my life to you, God. To be available, to be willing, to obey God in whatever he asks, whatever he commands. 
The very expression living sacrifice itself is something of an irony, isn't it? I mean, we all know what the word living means, but the word sacrifice means to kill something, to make it dead. So a living sacrifice describes, in in a sense, a deliberate living killing. Someone once said that the problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. But this living killing, I think, is clearly what Jesus had in mind when he said in Luke 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. I heard someone one time say, in Jesus' day, no one took up a cross who was not on his way to his own execution. To offer my body as a living sacrifice is to make a daily decision that my desires must die so that I can be free to do with my body what God desires. In the same way that you once used your body to serve yourself, you once used your body to fulfill the desires of your flesh, Paul's calling you by the Spirit in view of all that God has done for you, to now give God full control of your body. I don't want us to miss the physical nature of what Paul is talking about here. Because he is talking about your eyes, your nose, your mouth, your ears, your hands and feet, your voice, your sexuality, your intellect, your imagination. He is worthy of all of it. Paul adds two objectives in describing this sacrifice he's calling us to. The first is holy. Of course, there's the ethical, moral dimension to holiness, which, which means to be morally and spiritually pure. But it also means to be completely set apart by God as his own possession for his purposes. And that second adjective is the phrase acceptable to God. The apostle Peter said that we as Christians are to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's not that we are acceptable to God in and of ourselves, nor can we make ourselves acceptable to him. There's nothing you and I can do to dress ourselves up to somehow make ourselves acceptable to God. Instead, we're acceptable to God only through, as Peter said, Jesus Christ. And what we offer to God is made acceptable only through him. It would be very easy to take Romans 12, 1 and 2 and just rationalize them, spiritualize them. What I want you to think about is first that your body is the vehicle by which you sin. Isn't it? In fact, we read back in chapter 3, you guys remember this, this description of sinful humanity separated from God? Their throat is an open grave. 
They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. But your body is also the vehicle by which you serve him. And Paul is saying, now in light of God's mercies toward you, use the totality of your physical body to serve God. In the church I grew up in, we would frequently sing these words that express in large part what Paul is calling us to do. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine, it shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself, and I will be ever only all for thee. Then notice the rationale for Paul's appeal. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, I have no idea why someone chose to use the word spiritual when they translated this verse, but you see that word in a lot of translations. It has served to confuse a lot of people, including me. When I was growing up, I'd go, what's that all about? My spiritual, it's, I mean, I, I get it, right? But... It sounded so vague, so ethereal, my spiritual worship. Well, I have good news. The the word that Paul uses there is the word from which we get our word logic or logical. It's also translated rational and reasonable. And Paul is saying, look, offering your body to Christ as a living sacrifice only makes sense. It's the logical, intellectually rational response clear, reasonable thinking about the outpouring of God's mercies into your life will lead you to respond by giving all of yourself to him. And to do anything other, that is to give yourself half-heartedly or not at all, is completely illogical and supremely irrational. There was a first century Stoic philosopher by the name of Epictetus who once said, if I were a nightingale, I would do what is proper to a nightingale. And if I were a swan, what is proper to a swan? But in fact, I am logikos. That's the word that Paul uses here in Romans 12, 2. I am logikos, a rational being. So I must praise God. In verse 2, Paul calls us then to conscious nonconformity to the world system. I'll pause there so you can write that. Paul calls us to conscious nonconformity 
to the world system. When you think about it, only dead fish go with the flow. Am I right? Paul says, don't be conformed to this world. I love the way J.B. Phillips put it in his paraphrase, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. And I like even better the way Eugene Peterson paraphrased it in the Message Bible, where he wrote, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. See, being conformed is, in this case, is in the passive. This is what will happen without any effort. You will simply be squeezed into the world's mold without you even having to think about it. You just go through the motions of day-to-day living, allowing the the thought patterns of the world system to shape your thinking, to shape your mind. William Barclay wrote, We are not to be like a chameleon which takes its colors from its surroundings. Paul is calling us to conscious nonconformity to the world system, and then he says he, he, he calls us to cooperate with God in his process then of transformation instead. Do not be conformed, conformed to this world, but be transformed. Notice again that Paul doesn't say transform yourselves as if we could. He's not calling us to a new level of angst as Christians. He's not calling us to a a life of trying to be the person that God wants us to be. He says, be transformed. So having called us to offer our bodies, Paul now turns toward our minds. Do you know that God wants your mind? Do you know that God wants you to offer your intellect and your imagination to him as well? And that process begins with the total renovation of our powers and patterns of reasoning. And so he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I love the way that, again, that J.B. Phillips rendered this phrase. He said, let God remold your mind from within. Remember what Paul said Clear back in chapter 1 is the plight of the person who refuses to acknowledge or to worship God. He wrote there, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Your mind matters. The way you think matters. The shape of your intellect matters. A debased mind is one that is incapable of relating to God. 
In chapter 8, he wrote, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Cannot. The mindset on the flesh is the mindset on serving the self. Jesus said no one can serve two masters. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus prayed for us saying, Sanctify them in the truth. The truth, your word is truth. Paul wrote to the believers in Ephesus, Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. He exhorted the believers in Philippi, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about these things. Let your mind meditate on these things. Why is it so essential that we're transformed by the renewing of our minds? Well, simply because we began with a debased mind, because of our separation from God by sin. That's square one for all of us. So the governing influence of our minds now needs to be reoriented. Our imaginations need to be captured by Christ. The operating system that controls our fundamental thought processes needs to be replaced. A new one has to be downloaded. One that's given by God's Spirit and informed by God's Word. Centering on Jesus Christ. To that end, Paul challenged the Colossian Christians. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. He's not just talking about daily Bible reading here. He's not just saying, he's not just talking about going to church on Sunday and hearing some guy like me hold forth. He's saying, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it dwell, let it take up residence in your life. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. Speaking of the totality of the scriptures, it is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. God wants to transform your mind, transform you by the renewing of your mind. And finally, Paul says that God's transformation, this thing that he's trying to do in us, enables us to discern his will. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know, if I had a dollar for every time someone asked me a question like, Pastor Jim, what's God's will for my life? Like I'm supposed to know. (laughs) 
Or how can I discover God's will for my life? If I had a dollar for every time that question came my way, I'd be a wealthy man today. Those are important questions. God wants you to know his will for your life. It's, he's not holding back on you. But here's the key. God will only reveal it, and you will only receive it, when your heart is set to do it. Let me repeat that. God will only reveal it. You will only receive it when your heart is set to do it. God is under no obligation to show you his will when you're looking at it as just one on a menu of options for your life. Your mind needs to change. Your inner being needs to be transformed. And when he's ready, and he knows you, by the way, better than you know yourself, when he knows you're ready, he will give you insight. He'll give you not only that, but he'll give you the desire to do his will and then the power to do it. That's what God's word promises. When God renews our minds, we're enabled to discern and appreciate his will, we're able, we will, um, and, and we are able to determine to obey it. You'll know that God is working in you as, as God's word, the Bible, begins to make sense to you. The psalmist said, your, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And, and, and Paul talks about the illumination of Scripture, that God makes it real to us. He allows us, allows us to understand it. And when that happens, when, when the Word of God begins to make sense to you, truths begin to leap off of its pages that you've never comprehended before. You say, where's that been all my life? Why haven't I ever seen that? Why haven't I ever understood that? And God's word will confront you, it'll comfort you, it'll challenge you, it'll encourage you. And God, by his spirit, will use it to change you from the inside out as he transforms you by the renewing of your mind. Making you the person he wants you to be, enabling you to do what he wants you to do. And so as I close, what's the risk? The risk is giving up control, giving up the right to call the shots in your life. It's emptying your bank account, as it were, selling the Jetta. It's giving up to him all that you are. What's the reward? (laughs) Fullness of joy, fullness of maturity, learning finally what it means to be fully surrendered worshipers of God. We saw last week that God is looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Spirit and in truth. So let me ask you, are you tired of being a halfway Christian? Are you tired of spiritual mediocrity? 
Are you tired of casting about in the dark for what the will of God might be for your life? Let me reiterate, God is not holding back on you. He wants to show you his will. But even if he were to show it to you and you weren't willing to do it, it wouldn't be, there'd be no effect, would there? Are you ready to say, as the young woman in the video said, God, I give you my life, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to you through Jesus Christ. And God will begin to reveal to you, as you take that step, you make that decision, God will begin to reveal to you things he's never revealed before. And he'll bring you time and time again because you'll say, where's that? Where did that come from? How come I never saw that before? He'll bring you over and over again to the altar saying, okay, Lord, I'm giving up more because I didn't know there was more, but here it is. Here it is. Maybe today's the day for you that you would say, God, I am tired of mediocrity. I am tired of being a halfway Christian. I am tired of holding back on you. It isn't much fun being a mediocre Christian. It's just rotten. Maybe today's the day that you say, okay, God, here I am, such as I am. (laughs) And if you can use this body, this overweight body, this skinny body, this short body, this tall body, this body with bad hair, bad eyes, a big nose, bad skin, God, if you can use this, here it is. By the way, God gave you the body he gave you to accomplish the things through you that he intended. He has a plan for your life. He has a purpose for everything about you. Some of it we'll discover and some of it we won't, we'll only discover on the other side. But God has a plan and a purpose for your life. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your logical worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may test what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. God, I pray that we, uh, let me back up. God, let me be a living sacrifice. Lord, I want to be all that you want me to be. I pray that for my brothers and sisters this morning as well. That by your spirit, you would create in us an insatiable desire be fully surrendered to you, fully used by you. I pray that for us as a church corporately as well, that we wouldn't just be a a mediocre church, but a church that is right in the center of your will, accomplishing the things that you want to accomplish through us because we are surrendered to you. May that be true of us. In Jesus' name. Amen.